Hello, and welcome to There and Back, written by Philip Alishef, and also read by Philip Alishef. First of all, remember to like, share, and subscribe, and if you'd like to also subscribe and like the uh, blog and the blog post that I'm reading from, there's a link to my blog in the description of this video. We take so much for granted. I don't mean to ask for gratitude, but for curiosity. Why did people build one town further up a slope than another? Was it to defend against enemies or for trade, against floods or for some other reason? I'm speaking generally, of course, not of you specifically, but unless you're told to think about these things, you won't. I'm sure I do that myself sometimes. Everybody does it, and I'm no different. Towns and cities used to be built next to rivers or streams or some other source of water. The Mississippi, the Rhine, the Nile, the Ganges. Most of those cities are still there, and there's not many people building new ones. Villages, maybe. Where, I don't know, but they're not making any more land. We forgot why those cities were built there and not elsewhere, partly because we don't need to get our water from a stream or our fish from a sea. We don't think about it. It's a nice view, nothing more. That's how it is with a lot of things. Take zoning laws. We have them, but for how long have we had them? There was a time when nobody knew, because those laws didn't exist. And now we don't know, because someone else keeps an eye on that for us. A boat has to be by the water, but not everything has to be somewhere. When did we figure out the right place for an airport? All of this is trivia. Nobody knows, nobody needs to know, unless, ex un except historians, and unless it's your job, you won't learn it. This was what Leo Burns overheard from the group sitting next to him. It surprised him more than it should have to hear English in Paris, and in a Parisian airport, no less, where it was the most common language among passengers besides French. Had he been sitting one or even two tables further away, he probably could have made, made out most of what they said. It was the kind of idea that would send another man, when already unsettled by his own doubts, into a deep crisis about how alienated he was from his surroundings. Leo was self-assured, especially now, when his thoughts didn't reach much further than having a seat on the next plane to Manchester. The man promised Steve would show them uh, what he meant. When or where, he didn't say. A strange thing to do, especially in an airport. Well, maybe, Leo thought, they were going to the same place, or the man was leaving his listeners behind, and telling them what they'd do when he returned. Or maybe the man wasn't the one going. Leo speculated for the fun of it, unable to really know what he pl had planned. The man's friends gave their opinions, and then one of their group mentioned the time. They all, except Leo, of course, got up and walked briskly to their gates. He was going back home. Once you've grown unaccustomed to any particular time zone, that of your own country or of your destinations, or even the stops between the two, you, began to, you begin to accept being tired as a natural limitation, in the same way Leo guessed others might accept the circumstances of their birth. A stroke of bad luck gave you the right to be upset a right that wouldn't help you no matter how much you used it. 
His, flies, his flight had been delayed from early to late afternoon. The announcement came as he was checking in his suitcase. He rushed to find the flight schedule, hoping that his school-taught French had failed him just this once. He was too good for his own good. Leo couldn't fool himself, at least not in that way. He tried to believe the timing was lucky. If the delay had happened around boarding time, he would have taken it harder. He had more time and money than he knew what to do with, and decided to solve one problem with the other. He was past security and had, knowing what they would take and what they wouldn't, left some things at home and left others up to chance. He got through with some souvenir brandy, a little bell-shaped thing with a black label, from which he now drank furtively between sips of his water bottle, all while he chewed gum to hide the smell. In the end, his breath wasn't all brandy, but what remained was still suspicious. He went to the duty-free shop to see how much he would have paid for a bottle of brandy even smaller than the one he had smuggled, which was also within the airport's rules. The price astounded him because the brandy roused his feelings beyond their usual limits. The shop owners had a captive audience, Leo thought, and they knew it. Not him, though. He had escaped. Unless he had had too much, the effects of alcohol were all in his head. Not that they were imagined, but Leo was good at seeming sober, which he mostly was. He could think, walk, and talk straight. A breathalyzer might disagree, but it would only have a number as proof, not how he looked or acted. He browsed the airport's shops, much like he would later inspect the in-flight magazine and all the novelties it advertised, not intent on buying anything, but looking to be distracted. He rolled his luggage through the aisles because he didn't trust strangers to keep an eye on his belongings without also looking through them. He went slowly around the perfumes, fearing that he would stumble and take down a whole display. The chocolates were less delicate. The boxes were sturdy, though their contents weren't. If they fell, he could put them back on the shelf and nobody would mind. Leo agreed with the man he had overheard. Some people were unobservant. He wanted to set himself apart from them, so he tried to think about everything he saw. How did it get there? How did it work? Who made it? Why that way? His curiosity was almost as strong as a child's. As Leo wandered the airport, these questions came to him. He looked up the answer to all of them, walking slowly, and sometimes not at all, as he read from his phone. He didn't notice the people he inconvenienced unless they told him to move or pushed him aside. He walked from gate to gate until he reached the end. Then he turned around and made that his beginning. He didn't mind taking his other luggage with him. When one arm got tired, the other took over and when both got tired, he told himself there would be time to sleep on the plane. Hours would become minutes, and very easily, too. Leo could fall asleep with or without a bed. He could even do so standing up, as he now and again came close to doing while he waited for his flight. He allowed himself little joys, like taking the auto walk, whose other names, moving walkway, travelator, and people mover, he would learn about later. For now, he called it an escalator, because that's what it looked like, though it only moved horizontally. He heard conversations that didn't involve him, and for that reason, he tried not to listen. He couldn't close his ears like he could his eyes, and he didn't have earplugs, so that was all he could do. 
The people he might overhear spoke English and French. You could yell in other languages, and all he would understand is your mood, not your meaning. Boarding for his flight began just as he returned to his gate. He got behind the other passengers and waited some more. He wondered what might have caused the delay. Neither the man in front of him nor the woman behind him knew. The woman, lacking an answer, gave it a guess. The man told him he had no idea and turned away. Leo had a window seat. The woman he would be sitting by got up so Leo could get through. She was middle-aged. Her large pink purse lay between her feet. The space below her seat was for her backpack. Neither claimed the armrest that was between them. She crossed her legs and rested her arms there. He left his arms in his lap. After the roar of takeoff, for which Leo retained his childhood fondness, the plane subsided to a steady hum. If, he wondered, a bird were to get caught in the plane's blades, how would he know? The airport retreated from sight until it was no longer below them, but behind. As they kept going, he got an overview of cities and of seemingly flat tracts of land, whose purpose he could only guess at from afar and from their color. Brown patches were dirt. Tall and yellow meant wheat or some other crop. If it was short and yellow, it might be dried grass or a harvested field. He saw a little blue lake, as small as his view of it was brief, and at whose shore the sun stopped. Whether it would stay there or retreat or advance, he couldn't say. Sunshine made him mistake a bit of gray sky for blue clouds, but the plane moved on as he, and he saw it for what it was. Then came the coast, although Leo didn't recognize it as such, until the streets ended and he saw the sea. The pilot announced what the little TVs in front of them showed on their maps. They were crossing the English Channel. When all the clouds in the sky were above, uh, sky were below them, and only the sun remained above, Leo turned to his neighbor. She was neither asleep nor absorbed in anything particular. You know, he began, it's interesting to think about why things are the way they are. Leo repeated a little of what he heard the man say, though not his apologies or examples. It sounded better secondhand. Leo, t uh, I mean, she took his stolen monologue as the question it was meant to be, giving her thoughts without needing an invitation. Right, right. I have a jacaranda tree. They're the ones with purple leaves. Now that, th now that I think of it, those are South American. Who brought them? Why? Well, I think I can explain it. Somebody took some seeds or a little pot of jacaranda back from South America, and then their son or daughter set up a flower shop, and their great-great-grandson or daughter sold me the great-great-grand seed that's now my tree. That's why I've got mine. She sounded out the syllables of jacaranda and decided that it was definitely South American. It's the little things, Leo interjected quickly fearing that she would next try to determine the exact country the species came from, or think of other ways a flower might travel from place to place. Having secured his right to speak, he went on to use it. I didn't know, for example, how recent duty-free shops are. 1947. The head of an Irish airport, Brendan O'Regan, invented them. I wonder why they don't have taxes. You can't say you won't pay taxes, so there has to be a special arrangement with somebody. Leo made a mental note to find out how they got away with it. 
She nodded and went on with her garden, and how little she evidently knew about the flowers she kept. But, she said, she watered them well, and when she wasn't home, a friend did it for her. Once she got that off her mind, she returned to what he'd said. Yeah, she stretched the word out as if to fill the silence while she thought. They have to have something going on. Maybe, and now she spoke with excitement, proud to have an idea to put forward, because they're a stop between countries. Otherwise, who would the money go to? Maybe so. I got the idea for all this from a guy I met. We, don't, we didn't know each other well, but that stuck with me, Leo said, when she paused, intending to round off their conversation. She kept at it. I'd remember it, too. Once you start thinking about this stuff, it really gets to, to you in a good way. Look. She pulled her in-flight magazine from the pouch in front of her and held it up. When did this start? With a final, yeah, that's right, this time from him, their conversation stopped moving and fell apart. He enjoyed her company more than he would have sober, and because he was aware of this, he remembered the brandy. Leo straightened up, reaching under his seat for his bag. Now, don't tell anyone, but I brought something along, he said. He showed her the brandy and pointed to her plastic cup, the one a flight attendant had brought when she asked for water. No, no, I don't think that's smart, she said, whispering firmly and shaking her head with equal emphasis. If she were a bit fatter, her face and neck would have swung back and forth like a turkey's waddle. Leo's weight wasn't muscle either, but it made him stout. It didn't move, it didn't move very much. When the attendant had asked what he wanted, he said he had his own, own water. The attendant told him it would be no trouble. No, no, he had said, shaking his head in much the same way as she, as she just did. <clears throat> or as she had just done. Uh, save yourself the effort anyway, he replied. Consider it a token of thanks. Leo had lived to hear the word stewardess from his father, but became an adult too late in life to use it himself. As a child, he had used miss. He thought about taking a quick sip right from the bottle, but then he hesitated, and that robbed him of the momentum he needed for most of his stupid decisions. The doubts he had outran now caught up to him. Someone might see him or smell it from the bottle or from his breath, which, because he'd used up all his gum, would have brandy on it and little else. Well scalded and suitably ashamed, Leo put the brandy back in his bag and took out his own magazine, entertaining the idea of buying what he saw. Even in his imagination, he quickly ran out of uses for most of it. He could do with a watch, but not one that glowed in the dark, or was precise down to meaningless fractions of a second, or had two hands and a blank face. After judging the products on their own merits, he read what the magazine had to say about them. Neither left much of an impression on him. He thought of what he would have liked to he thought of what he would have liked to say and liked to hear, had she let him pour her some brandy. They'd be two drunks chatting away and not caring what they said. He believed brandy would do to her what it did to him. He imagined them talking about the magazine and all the things she'd joke about. As for his own jokes. He heard them as he thought of them, 
Leo read until he fell asleep. Besides closing his eyes, he seemed much like he had a minute before. Half an hour later, the sun put its fingers into his eye and woke him up. Had that not done it, something else would have. He blinked, then looked out the window. There was still some time until they landed. Before they went back under the clouds below, they had to go through them. Leo compared it to diving in that something divided one place from another, where you could see the clouds and you couldn't see a waterline. His window was blue, then white, and then blue again. Soon he could see cities. They kept to this height for a while. As they went lower and lower, Leo saw more and more of what the clouds had hidden. He wanted to start another conversation, but kept hesitating, unable to find an opening, until the plane's wheels hit the ground and the opportunity was gone. In the wait that followed as the plane came to a halt and began docking at the airport, it was clear that both he and she wanted only to leave, so much so that they didn't try to pass the time by talking. It didn't occur to them to exchange names. It would have been pointless anyway. Nor did they know that they were headed in the same direction for different reasons. She was going on holiday. He was coming back from it. He had been all over France on a sightseeing tour of churches and historical sites. God knows where she was off to. Maybe this was her last stop. Maybe not. She wasn't English by her accent, he thought, but she looked it. He tried to guess what she was. Her words were too flat to be studied. He turned the question around. Could she tell where he what could she tell where he was from? Would she know he was from the north of England, or were no, north, east, south, and west and the regions they covered all the same to her? Maybe she even thought he was Irish or Scottish. Well, he reasoned, giving her the benefit of the doubt. His accent was no stronger than hers. Teachers had worked hard to get his father to speak like they did. Because of their efforts, none of his children had much of an accent, and the little that remained went away with further exposure to the standard they were expected to adopt. Leo folded his magazine as best as it let him. It had a spine, so he had to roll it up from one side to the other. He put it in his jacket pocket. It stuck out, but went unnoticed by the flight attendants. Once home, he, put, he opened every window. Soon he felt new air push out the old. Tasted it, too. He set his luggage down and opened it. The same thing happened at a smaller scale. He rested a while, waiting for his mind to catch up to his body before he began unpacking. He put his jacket over his chair. The magazine was still in the jacket's pocket. He watched it hang there. The brandy was on his desk. Tomorrow, he thought as he got into bed, he would dig up his town's history. No, he was too tired for such work. But who knows how he might feel when the day actually came. With that, he slipped off into a sleep that was as uncolored by the thoughts that came before it as the one he had had on the plane. Whenever he, in the next four days, drank brandy or even looked at a bottle of the same shape, size, or color, he thought of her. Leo had nothing, no name, no address, nothing but that flight to remember her by. He didn't love her or want to see her again, but she was so bound up with Brandy that it didn't matter how he felt. This connection, easily made, was also easily severed. He forgot about her and about the return trip, too. 
What reason did he have to look back? That was There and Back by Philip Balashev and also read by Philip Balashev. Again, remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to also subscribe and like the blog post that this came from, you can find a link to that in the description. Thanks, and until next time.